pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for those men that you placed in our lives along the way to teach us about what life is about, about responsibility and about godliness and about faithfulness, about diligence, doing the right thing the right way. Lord, we pray for those that today is a tough day for. Those who don't have good relationships with their fathers or fathers who are grieving a loss or abandonment by their own child. Lord, we pray for strength and courage for them today. We thank you that you are the Father who will never leave us nor forsake us. You will always teach us. You will always guide us. You will always correct us. You will always love us. We thank you that we can always turn to you in times of celebration to give you praise. And in times of difficulty to come to you for comfort. We thank you for wrapping your arms around us each and every day. We are privileged and blessed to call you Father. Lord, we thank you for your word reveals, that reveals all of these deep, deep truths to us about who you are and how much you love us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned this before, but when I was in sixth grade and about 12 years old, uh, one morning before school, I got this awful pain in my right side. Soon it spread across to my left side and my whole stomach area was an intense pain. My father took the day off of work and took me to the doctor who claimed that it was my appendix, but that I must have gotten some sunflower seeds stuck in it. And that was about as far as it went. My father asked him if it could be appendicitis and if he should take me to the hospital, to which the doctor replied, you can take him if you want to, but I really don't think... You need to. My dad took me anyway, which I'm very grateful for, because the emergency room nurse took one look at me and admitted me to the hospital for an appendectomy. I had the surgery later that day, and they had thankfully removed my appendix right before it burst. My dad then stayed with me the whole rest of the time in the hospital while I recovered. And that serves both as a memory of my own father's goodness and diligence and a lead-in to our message this morning. Sometimes, because of this cursed world, our bodies develop conditions and sicknesses that need to be removed or make the distance between them and the rest of our bodies in order to preserve the rest of our bodies great. In addition, when a part of our bodies isn't working right, special care needs to be taken in order to heal and restore that part of our bodies. If we try something less radical and less invasive and it doesn't work, we oftentimes have to turn to a stronger form of treatment. Each local church is a representation of the body of Christ, with Jesus as the head of the body, and each of us fulfilling the role in that church that God has gifted us for. In turn, every believer in Jesus is a member of the universal church, or the worldwide church, that Jesus established with his death and resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit. 
We talked last week extensively about the specific situation Paul was addressing at the church in ancient Thessalonica, and we'll be building on that this morning. So the first point that we come to is we work our way uh, through, through uh, chapter 3 here, the, these verses 10 through 15, is the controversy. We talked last week how intense persecution and an inaccurate understanding of end times events had led to at least a portion of the church to believe they were already living in apocalyptic times. Because of this, several members of the church had wondered, well, since we're already in the end times, there's no point to having a job. I just need to survive this time of tribulation. So some did just that and quit their jobs. Paul had written his first letter to the church what we know as 1 Thessalonians, in part to correct their inaccurate understanding of end times theology and encourage them to go back to work and lead quiet, anchored, steadfast lives. Lives reflective of the order and peacefulness of God. In fact, God gave this group of people a more friendly encouragement as to what they needed to do now in his first letter to them. He, he wrote, Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business, and working with your hands just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live, and you will not need to depend on others. He's already said this to them before. But here, he's saying it in a, in a much more friendly way, a friendly reminder to them. At the same time, Paul instructed the rest of the church who hadn't quit their jobs and were doing what they were supposed to do. He said, brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, who aren't doing what we, what we told you you need to be doing. Apparently, however, those who had quit their jobs, which Paul was warning in his first letter to go back to work and lead a quiet life and mind their own business, never did so. They never heeded Paul's warning in his first letter to them. And if the other brothers and sisters had warned them too, those warnings apparently went unheeded as well. What's worse is that those people who didn't heed Paul's warning before weren't just not working. What they were doing is that they were actively disrupting the unity of the church. What were they doing? Well, we read in our passage this morning, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but what? Acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Paul notes that what he tells them in verse 10 is nothing new. He's already told them this before and has even stressed this very thing to them. He's perhaps drawing upon similar proverbs in the Old Testament that say the Lord will not let the, hung, the godly go hungry, but he refuses to satisfy the craving of the wicked. Lazy people are soon poor. Hard workers get rich. Work brings profit, but mere talk leads to poverty. As one biblical scholar noted, Paul is not speaking to those who could not work, but to those who would not work. In other words, to those who could work, but refused to. And in verse 12, Paul is basically instructing those in the church who were working to not give any more food to those in the church who refused to work. 
And verse, uh, verse 12 is a reiteration of what Paul had already told them in 1 Thessalonians 4, which we already read. On the surface, it seems heartless, doesn't it? But the bigger issue that was coming out of the idleness of those who refused to work that Paul was attempting to resolve by cutting off the physical sustenance from those who could and, 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 and should have been earning it for ourselves is this. It's addressed in verse 11. Acting like busybodies. Instead of spending the majority of their time working hard, there was a group of people in the Thessalonian church who, were, who was rather spending their time meddling in everybody else's business, being busybodies, and creating unrest and therefore disunity within that church. Instead of minding their own business and working hard and focusing on their own spiritual growth and what changes they could make in their own lives, it was this all day long. Did you hear about what so-and-so did? Did you know what so-and-so had said? Can you believe what happened to so-and-so? Do you think they deserved it? It was this all day long. In addition, we learn from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian church that there was this underlying and active lack of respect towards the church leadership and how they were leading the church. Paul had to instruct them to start making that change. He said, dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and how hard they work for you, and live peacefully with each other. He's already told them this before, but he knows this is a, a, an underlying problem. As referenced by one biblical scholar, Paul wouldn't have written this if he didn't think he needed to. Paul wouldn't have written that if he didn't see a problem that needed correcting. Paul knew that an underlying lack of respect for the church leadership, combined with a busy mouth, was a recipe for disaster, the perfect storm, and the fastest way for the church to be destroyed. We know from Paul's letters that nothing good will ever come out of a combination of these two attitudes, and only destruction will come out of that combination. The body of Christ cannot function properly, cannot grow, cannot live and thrive if that combination is taking place in it. In fact, quite the opposite will happen. That combination of busy lips, loud mouths, and active disrespect and discontentment towards the leaders Jesus has placed in the leadership of his church is a spreading sickness that will ultimately take the life of that church. Paul saw the power of this problem from a mile away. And it was an ongoing problem. So seeing how powerfully destructive he knew this problem continued to be, Paul pulled no punches. He didn't cater to those causing disruption and disunity. He gave counsel as to how best to lead those engaging in it to repent of it. Do you see that in our, in our passage this morning? That Paul did not give instruction to the rest of the church to appease those causing disruption and disunity. Quite oppositely, Paul gave instruction to the rest of the church to lead those causing disruption and disunity to repent of their ongoing behavior. Ignoring, appeasing, or God forbid, feeding the sickness will only cause it to grow 
and spread. The only remedy for this is repentance and change. That's the only remedy for this. So we have the controversy, what was going on in the Thessalonian church. And secondly, we talk about Paul's correction for this controversy. God is our Heavenly Father, and He is the God of order. Some of us have had earthly fathers that reflected that quality of God. Everything had a certain order and a place and a right and orderly way of things and and doing things. When I was a kid and I cut the grass for the first time, my dad stood out there by me the entire time, pointing out the parts I missed and yelling to me if I was going too fast or not overlapping enough or going about it out of order. It drove me nuts, but you know what? I still try to cut the grass the exact same way he showed me. Everything has an orderly and right way to do it. In God's family, he has given a certain order and way for handling disruption in that family and body. Last week, we talked about how Paul gave his first step in addressing this destructive problem. Like we've already referenced before, in his first letter to the church, Paul wrote, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. That's another translation of what we had already read. Admonish the unruly. This was the first and least strict form of discipline. To admonish and warn those causing the disunity and point it out to them. Perhaps some of these were not even aware of what they were doing or aware of the destruction it was causing. Jesus gave the exact same first step when it came to dealing with public and or interpersonal sin in the church. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. See that? In private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Ideally, that's where most disunity ends. Right there. The error is seen and corrected Forgiveness is given, the chapter is closed, and everyone moves on. That's it. In addition, notice what is completely absent from this first step. Is there anywhere in this first step where gossip or sharing with someone else who has absolutely nothing to do with the situation is perfectly fine? Do you see that in there at all? No, in fact, what do we read? In private. That's where it stays. This is where the fire of a busy tongue starts to grow and spread right here when this first step isn't even handled properly. The biblical instruction for handling these situations is first step, go to your brother or sister one-on-one and point out where they have misstepped. It can be cleared up right then, right there, And it's over. Nowhere does it tack on going and telling a bunch of other people what happened. Nowhere does it say to gather a crowd or make sure others are in earshot or not care who is in earshot and then have a conversation with your your brother or sister. What does it say? In private, one-on-one. Nobody else needs to know about it. Nobody else should know about it. And that's where this first, that's why this first step is so effective. Because everything can be handled right then, right there. Chapter's closed and everyone is, has moved on. 
The biblical instruction is to make it as clean, clear, peaceful, succinct, and discerning as possible. That's God's way. That's what our Heavenly Father has laid down for His family. Ideally, at that point, the situation is corrected, cleared up, and no one but the two in that conversation even knows about it. Notice that Jesus stresses the privateness and personalness of that conversation. Now, what if the person in need of correction doesn't, li doesn't listen and nothing is corrected or cleared up? Well, then Jesus moves on to the next step and he says, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. This may take different forms, sometimes involving the church leadership, but notice how Jesus refers to who else needs to be a part of this conversation. Witnesses, right? Those who are actually having to do with this situation. In fact, Jesus is making an obvious reference to Deuteronomy 19.15 from the law, and he says, a single witness shall not rise up against the man on account of, of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Any accusation leveled at a, at, at a member of church leadership is addressed at this second step of correction. Paul wrote to Pastor Timothy, Do not listen to an accusation against an elder unless it is confirmed by two or three witnesses. This is a level of protection for church leadership, and it also prevents an individual person or, or, or a couple of people from having an axe to grind and continually pointing out what they see as faults and mistakes by any member of the church leadership. Remember, as Paul told the Thessalonian church, the church leadership carries the weight of much responsibility and as such deserves the encouragement and support from those that they lead not the constant tearing down and discouragement. Paul is at this second step of correction when he writes in verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter. He's at the second step of correction here. What do I mean by this? Paul is not contradicting Jesus' instruction here by jumping to what seems to be Jesus' third step of correction, which we'll cover in a minute. Paul is clear about that by writing... If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter. Here's what I mean. Paul had already warned those in the Thessalonian church with divisive behavior once before in his first letter to them. We, we saw that in 1 Thessalonians. He did so in an understanding and non-aggressive manner, but it was a warning nonetheless. They didn't listen to him. When Paul says at the beginning of verse 14 that the warning he's giving again along with the witness of at least Timothy and Silas, who most likely delivered the first letter to Paul. After all, Paul does say our instruction in this letter. So now he's bringing in the two or three witnesses. So now Paul instructs what the next step of correction should be. Second part of verse 14 and into verse 15. Take special note of that person and do not associate with them, so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This is in direct connection with Jesus' third step 
of correction. If he refuses to listen to them, if he refuses to listen to them, the two or three witnesses, tell to the church. That's the third step. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. That's very similar to what Paul just wrote in uh, these verses here. The instruction that Paul gives in verses 14 to 15 is the tell it to the church part, the first part of Matthew 18, 17, in hopes that that step, that third step, will finally be the one to bring these divisive brothers and sisters to repentance for their behavior. They haven't listened to Paul or his instruction yet. In Paul's mind, hopefully this third step will be what finally gets a hold of their hearts. So what does this step and instruction consist of? What Paul is prescribing here and following Jesus' formula for correction was for each member of the church to put social pressure on their divisive brothers and sisters. According to one biblical scholar, it doesn't seem like this is an official public identification by the church leadership, but rather that each obedient individual should follow this instruction and not socially interact with their disobedient brothers and sisters. To us, that might seem heartless, but what was the point of this? As Paul says in verse 14, the point of it was for those who were identified by their brothers and sisters as divisive and therefore disobedient would feel the effects of being cut off socially. If this happened, because let me ask you this, if this happened to any one of us, how do you think we would feel if all of a sudden all our brothers and sisters in the church cut us off socially? How would that make us feel? Normally, we would and should feel ashamed of ourselves. That's what we would feel. Now, the person in that situation, feeling the effects of social ostracism, would be at a crossroads. They could either get angry with their brothers and sisters, the church leadership, Paul, and even God, or they could allow their shame to turn them to repentance. That repentance would then turn into a change of behavior in life, and restoration into the, church, into the church body. Lastly, Paul felt the need to put the safeguard on this correction. Paul was a smart guy, and he was also led by the Holy Spirit, and he also knew humans very well, believer in Jesus or not. And he knew that those obedient church members could very well get carried away with Paul's instruction and not see it as a means of restoration, but rather of driving people away. Let's just be mean to them and they'll just leave. That's why Paul included in verse 15 that even in that correction, to still view the disobedient members as what? Brothers and sisters, not as enemies, as brothers and sisters. The last step Paul wanted in giving this instruction was for the church to automatically jump. The last thing Paul wanted in giving this instruction for the church was to automatically jump from Jesus' third step of correction, which we see in the first half of verse 17, Matthew 18 here, and just automatically jump to Jesus' fourth step of correction here. That of finally, if nothing worked to restore a disobedient brother or sister, to treat them like a Gentile or tax collector. Why did Jesus use that illustration? If you were Jewish, 
living in first century Jewish society under Rome, you did not whatsoever associate with pagan Gentiles or cheating, backstabbing tax collectors. You did not associate with them whatsoever. So that is why Jesus used that illustration. That's the fourth step of correction. Paul is hoping that his instruction here as the third step will finally be what grabs the disobedient members' hearts. So we saw the controversy in the church. We saw the steps of correction that Paul used to to hopefully lead those members to repentance. And finally, we have the connection. We've seen from God's word the clear and functional steps that our Heavenly Father has laid out for His children and His family. He has created the church to be unlike any other group in the world and not behave like any other group in the world. And He expects His children to strive to actively build each other up and actively promote the unity of His family. So Paul's instruction may not be specifically directed at us today, but what can be taken from these verses? If a brother or sister in the faith, and especially in our church, comes to you with gossip about what someone else has done, or comes to you with vocal discontentment with the mission or operation of the church, or comes to you with words that drip active disrespect towards the church leadership, According to this passage, which we just explored, you are not to give a second of listening or time to that destructive and divisive talk. You are not to give a second of time to that destructive and divisive talk. You can stop them right there and tell them that if they have a concern or discontentment with anything having to do with anyone or anything in the church, that they should go directly to the church leadership to discuss it. In fact, the church leadership happily welcomes it. You do not have to be and you should not be party to that conversation or behavior. We all have the right and responsibility to cut it off right there and say, I don't want to hear it. Take it to the church leadership. They'd be happy to talk to you about it. If you are someone who may be spreading gossip about what someone else has done or are actively sharing your vocal discontentment with the mission or operation of the church or are speaking words to other brothers and sisters that drip active disrespect towards the church leadership, according to our passage today, you need to take a hard look at God's word and you need to take a hard look at yourself. We've seen that God's word speaks for itself, and we've seen that it gives no room or platform to that destructive behavior. In fact, we've seen in places like this passage and many others how God's word condemns that type of behavior and sternly warns those who actively engage in it. If you are legitimately concerned about someone else's sin or you have discontentment with the mission and operation of the church or you have a concern about what the church leadership is doing, find two or more members of the elder board and express that to them or write the elder board a written communication. We want to hear if there are concerns from the congregation. We want to see how we can address them. And we do not want anyone to feel like they don't have a voice to express their concerns. But 
They have to be expressed in an orderly and biblical way, as we've seen from God's word. Not only are we accountable to the Lord, we're accountable to each other. Going back to our opening illustration, God created the body to work in a certain way, with all the members working together. Why? So that body can grow, right? The different human body systems work according to certain God-ordained biological laws. The heart cannot decide to start beating a different way because it wants to, right? Or else what's going to happen to that body? It's not going to work right. And it could possibly lead to death. What would happen if the heart all of a sudden started deciding they wanted to beat a different way than God's ordained biological law? It would affect all the other systems and eventually the body would die. In the same way, since we are all members of God's body, of Christ's body, we all have to act and behave the way God's word instructs us to. Not one of us can think we are exempt from it. It will affect the rest of the body, and ultimately, it will spell destruction. Likewise, on the positive side, all the body systems work together to continue life, growth, and maturation. We all must have the same goal of serving our church and community with the humility and love of Jesus in order to share the gospel with our community and the world, or what? We're fruitless, and nothing we'll do, we do will matter. That must be at the forefront of our mind and nothing else. That was one of the reasons Paul was so strong in his instruction to the Thessalonian church. God created the church to be a family of support, growth, encouragement, and love. The beauty of our Heavenly Father's family is that it is made up of all kinds of different people and held together by the Holy Spirit's bond of peace. God has given each of us a part to fulfill in his body. All different parts, but all vital parts. He's given each of, his fa- each of his children a spiritual gift to build that family up. It's a beautiful illustration of God's love. Paul was so strong in his warnings and instruction in this situation because he knew how important church unity was to God. Why? Because it's his family. And he's laid out certain ways for us to function. That's why he wrote to the Ephesian church, and this is what we'll close with. Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. you not only are you a God of faithfulness and love, but you are a God of order. There is a right way to do things. You've laid it all out for us in your word. We thank you for giving us that guidance as a good father would. Lord, we thank you that you give us the courage to repent of different things that need to be repented of, 
to make changes inside of us that need to be changed and to lead us to do things the way that you have ordained them to be. We thank you that you are with us every step of the way. This is your family. Lord, I pray that we continue to fulfill each function as we are each member of one body. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our time this morning.